Good morning and welcome to The Home Show with me, Sinead Ryan. Coming up today, would you fancy a portrait worth over €200,000 in your home? Well, we'll be getting the highlights from the Antiques Fair taking place in Dublin this weekend. We'll get a preview of what we can expect from next week's budget. I'll chat to the winner of Shed of the Year and find out how to make yours stand out. And author Owen Dalton will be telling us about the joys of rewilding. If you'd like to get involved in the show today, you can text us here at The Home Show at 53106 for 30 cent. You can email us on thehomeshow at newstalk.com and you can find me over on Instagram at Sinead Ryan 100. Remember, you can listen live or listen back to the show and all of our podcasts, which are up on the News Talk website or on the app, powered by Go Loud. Now, you're very welcome come along uh, this weekend. Did you ever consider jacking it all in and doing something completely different? So many people saw the COVID lockdown periods as opportunities perhaps to look at life in a different way or try something new that they've always wanted to do. And many for sure are now working from home in an entirely new home, maybe out of the city, finding life at a slower pace and communing with nature. It's a wonderful way to live and have that work-life balance. I don't know if I could manage now the wilderness uh, myself. I think I'm too much of a city girl. But if I did, there are certainly few places more beautiful than the stunning Berra Peninsula. Well, later in the show, I will be talking to somebody with a passion for rewilding who moved from the inner city of Dublin to West Cork. And I'm really looking forward to finding out how he got on. So do stay tuned for that. In the meantime, I'd love to know where you'd like to live if you could just up sticks and move. Would you stay in Ireland, move out of the city, move into the city perhaps? Let me know, 53106 or email us here at thehomeshow at newstalk.com. You're very welcome along. Now, the Timeless Irish Antique Dealers Fair takes place in the RDS this weekend in Dublin and you can see a huge display of art, jewellery, furniture, paintings, prints and much more. And among those who have come to Ireland for it is exhibitor Rupert McBain, an antiques consultant who joins me now in studio. Rupert, you're very welcome along to The Home Show. Thank you very much, Sinead. Thank you. Um, Now, the piece that has tongues wagging is, of course, the Andy Warhol screen print of Grace Kelly. What can you tell us about it that makes it special? Well, it's a very striking image. It's one of, I think, 255 screen prints, which were completed in 1984. And actually, it illustrates just how strong the contemporary and modern art market is, because I think it's got a big um, price on it. It's with Gormley's, I think. It is. Gormley's are exhibiting it. And and 200,000 euros? Well, this is the thing. I mean, it's it's desirable. Iconic, isn't it? And desirable. Well, it, yeah. It's desirable. And I'm actually looking forward to having a, a proper look at it. But it's a very striking, it's almost electric. Yeah. Um, and of course, image. Grace Kelly is such, uh, she's Irish roots and, you know, such an iconic figure yeah. herself. Yeah. Um, and of course, Andy Warhol's prints have been, I don't know how many times they've been replicated on everything from kind of tea towels to buildings, really. Well, absolutely. And I think what's nice about this is you can get up close and have a look. And I think the colours will be vibrant. It's a slice of history, that sort of Hollywood, you know, slightly femme fatale. You know, there's so much behind it. Mm. So You're looking forward to seeing that. very much so. Now, that's not even the most expensive item that's there. Um, There is an absolutely gorgeous, I I don't know whether it's a brooch or just a piece of jewellery. It's the Lalique Corsage. Uh, gold and you describe them to me. They're abs- it's, it's stunning. Well, he is a master jeweller mm. and I have seen the dragonfly 
brooches. And this particular piece is obviously very close to the maker's heart because it was made, I believe, for his lover. So there's all sorts of symbolism. But perhaps most importantly, from my point of view, the execution is unbelievable. Hmm. This is, well, as, as it's a museum piece. And he, René Lalique, he was so influential hmm. on both Art Deco and Art Nouveau, those movements. And although possibly a lot of people know him for glass. Well, this is the thing. Yeah. So most people, when they think of René Lalique, will think of that kind of um, shadowed glass uh, items that, yeah. that are there and in that Art Nouveau kind of um, style. So this, you're saying, isn't a departure for him. This is also, he, 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 it's a masterpiece. He is a master jeweller. This is not some whim. This is what he does, and he does it beyond mm. the the ability of ninety nine percent of craftsmen. It's it's the level of detail, really, in yeah. it that strikes you, isn't it? Well, and the colours, mm. the crispness, the colours, but also I think because of the history behind it, mm. and you know, to have this master who's putting his soul on the line with a with a piece of jewellery, such a personal piece, yeah. you think? Yeah, right. Well, if you fancy those, uh, and of course you can find all this on timeless.ie, which is the website associated with it. That will probably cost you around four hundred and fifty thousand euros. Uh, now, uh, tell us, uh, Rupert, about some of the other pieces that strike you, um, or maybe some of the pieces that you're involved in this weekend. Well, I've seen a few pieces as we were setting up. Um, fabulous paintings with the Gori Gallery, you know, lovely to look at. Um, Niall Mullen's got lots of things. The other thing I spotted was a lovely set of Scandinavian-influenced mid-century chairs, dining chairs with acquired. I quite like those. Um, I think what is striking is there's so much and mm. such a variety from lighting, sculpture, contemporary art, mm. antiques, and the people behind all these objects have a huge amount of knowledge. So I think it is an opportunity to talk to those people who really, you know, they've got objects which they know a lot about. And I know some people get a little bit nervous about going into an art exhibition where they do know there are experts there and they're used to dealing maybe at the very high end uh, in the art world. And they might be a little anxious about asking what might seem like a silly question or, you know, they're buying their first piece, but they're not sure how to get started. What would you what would you say to them? I'd say talk to people. Everybody wants to talk. All the people there are, I don't like the word passionate necessarily, but they they love the things that they deal with. And they love talking about them and they will explain. Um, And there's so many facets. Some people will will know about gardening. We know about our objects Mm -hmm. um, and we can explain. So I would be totally unabashed and ask Okay, and just have a chat. And it's a lovely exhibition. I've been to yeah. it myself. It's just, it's lovely just to wander around, actually, and take a yeah. few hours uh, to have a look, even if your pockets aren't terribly deep. And there's oh. there's something for everybody, isn't there? Absolutely. All right. Okay, now talk to me a little bit about your own work, because you yourself, of course, are a furniture maker. Um, and you are also involved in finding pieces for for stately homes or for families who are on the lookout for very special uh, pieces of furniture. Talk, talk to me a little bit about what you do. Well, I've spent the last 35 years working in England with stately homes, private collections, museums, and that could be in a capacity as a furniture maker, making contemporary pieces, or as a conservator, conserving them, or advising or sourcing pieces. There might be a position that needs a particular thing, and it's my job to advise them where to find it and make sure that they get it, get what they want. 
And is it in the main where people have, you know, great houses that they want to decorate them and find pieces that are sympathetic to the period in which the house was constructed? Or do you find that people, you know, just want to flip that and say, no, I want to to have contemporary pieces in there? How do you manage that mix? I I think handled well, that is an exciting mix. And I think a lot of people, um, whether they have bought the house or whether they've inherited it, they bring with it their own mores and their own taste. And I think navigating that, a piece of antique furniture sits beautifully with a contemporary piece. I mean, I know that's a rather hackneyed thing to say, but it works. And I think navigating that and interpreting what people want, getting under their skin, realising what they want and finding it for them. Mm. And that's a, that's an exciting process. Where is the where's the nicest place that you've you've worked with, the nicest client you've worked with? I know Castle Howard was one of the places. Now, that, of course, people will know that as the setting for Brideshead Revisited. Yeah. Is it just wonderful being in that space and breathing that air, do you think? Yes. I mean, these, these houses do have an atmosphere and the objects that have sat in um, those positions for centuries. That produces an aura and a feeling... And yes, I was very lucky. It's very lucky um, to work in these places and fabulous architecture, great sculpture and, of course, Mm. lovely furniture, which is my love. And curators for the future. I mean, we had Lady Carnarvon on the show, who, of course, is Chatelaine of um, Highclere, which is Downton, doubles as Downton Abbey. And uh, she she was talking about herself as and and her husband as as just kind of um, caretakers of these beautiful items and this building. Is that the sense that you get from people who are lucky enough to to own these places? I would say unquestionably yes. The people that I'm working for, whether it's at um, Raby Castle or Ask Hall, these are people who love what they have and want to look after it and pass it on. Mm. And, and, that, and they expend a huge amount of energy doing that. Mm. And of course, we do have some great houses here in Ireland. We've Rusbrough and we've Burr Castle and, and all of those places. And I, I presume it, it's difficult. It's an expensive balance, isn't it, to, to keep a great house like that going and you know, furnish it appropriately um, and also have that balance between between the upkeep of it. Absolutely. Um, no roof, no house, but, you know, you've got to have nice furniture <laughs> as well. And <laughs> what can I say? <laughs> Do, are, there, are there families who are kind of bowed to the necessity of having to flog it off every so often? <laughs> and, and I presume you can help them with that. Well, <laughs> listen, of course that happens. The family but, silver. Listen, it happens. But yeah. the thing is, if that's done strategically... It can be a saviour because you have a nice piece mm. and you deal with it in the right way. That's a game changer. Mm. Um, and helping to navigate that is, you know, that, that's a nice thing to be able to do. There are people out there I know and um, any time Antiques Roadshow comes back on the telly, you know, people suddenly start looking at their corner table in a new way and wonder, is it suddenly worth a fortune? Well, what would you say to people who, who have that dusty piece in the attic, maybe an old chair that they think is quite ugly but might be worth some money? Show it to someone. <laughs> you never know. <laughs> Provenance is an important thing, isn't it? It is very important because I think once you know um, where something has come from and who made it, it brings it alive. Yeah. Um, so yes, it is. And it's important. It's, you, it's guys like you who go and, and search for that and make sure that it, it's spot on. Well, well, that's right. And Philip, who I work with, Philip Byrne, who's my business partner, he is very good. He's got a very academic knowledge of furniture, very good at looking for things, finding pieces mm. that um, 
you know, perhaps haven't been on the market for a long time, perhaps have, you know, been miscatalogued or have just disappeared. Mm. Um, and he's based in County Kilkenny, so it's a good combination, really. His, yeah. his, his knowledge brings a lot to the, to the mix. Wonderful. All right. Well, listen, enjoy the exhibition and the uh, Antiques Fair. I hope it's very successful for you. Um, Rupert MacBain of MacBain & Byrne, thank you for joining us uh, today on The Home Show. Thank you very much. Timeless, the Irish Antiques Dealers Fair takes place in Dublin's RDS this weekend and you can find out more on timelessfair.ie. Now, still to come on the home show, what would you be watching out for the budget? Well, we'll have the breakdown, whether you're a homeowner, a renter or a landlord. We'll be back with you in a few moments. And you're very welcome back to the home show here on News Talk. I'm Sinead Ryan with you until the top of the hour. If you'd like to get in contact with us today, you can text us on 53106 for 30 cents. You can email us uh, at the home show at newstalk.com. You can listen back to the podcast, which is up on the News Talk app powered by Go Loud. And if you do that, you will hear my interview before the break with Rupert McBain, um, curator, antiques expert. He was absolutely lovely and uh, talking all about the timeless uh, exhibition that's on in the RDS this weekend. Now, this coming week will reveal how tight our purse strings will be as budget 2023 is announced. So what do we know? What can we expect? Well, joining me now to preview it is Dr. Tom MacDonald of the Nevin Economic Research Institute. Tom, you're very welcome along uh, to the home show this morning. Now, look, let's start with housing. It's obviously going to be a key component of this year's budget. What measures do you believe are open to the minister, say, for renters and landlords for that particular sector? Well, I think what we're hearing is that there is consideration to some kind of tax incentive or tax expenditure for for landlords and also that there may be uh, some form of tax credit uh, available to renters. So obviously a tax credit for for renters will, will, will improve their disposable income and of course Housing is something that we, we really can solve in Budget 2023. It's been an ongoing crisis now for, for, close, for close to 20 years, and it's going to take at least another half a decade before it's something that can really be resolved. And over the longer term, it's going to be about a multi-annual budgeting approach in terms of greater state investment. So in that context, um, a credit for, for renters should be seen as a patch, really. It's about dealing with it with an existing market failure. Um, in terms of tax credits for renters, I mean, we, renters had tax relief for years and then it was knocked on the head because it, it was considered, like a lot of these tax reliefs, that it's inflationary, yeah. it just leads That's to right. price chasing and all that. Yeah. I mean, how do you how do you kind of deploy fiscal policy so that that doesn't become the consequence? Yeah. Well, I, I suppose... What the Commission on Tax and Welfare uh, found was that you actually shouldn't use any tax incentives to um, influence the housing market at all. And and the reason for that is it was felt that they were, as you said, inflationary in, in terms of in terms of rental car, rental rents that would be charged because it'll just be it'll just be built in by um, the landlord. They would just add a hundred euros or two hundred euros or or whatever it might be per annum. And also that, you know, these things all have a fiscal cost and really the money perhaps could be spent better elsewhere. So it could be spent better in terms of increasing social welfare rates or in terms of putting the money to investing directly into building houses mm, mm. itself. So, so overall, we have a very, very poor record, as you know, over the last really 25, 30 years in terms of our interventions in the housing market. 
and usually tax expenditures c- can have kind of per- kind of perverse effects that yeah. they can they can create all sorts of um unfortunate incentives we saw that in the lead up to 2008 and really what the commission found and I was a member of that commission was that the best thing that government could do is really withdraw from interfering in the market in, in terms of tax expenditures at all overall you're better to have you know lower tax rates than to have tax expenditures for example but broadly speaking it's it's better not to intervene and for the mm. state perhaps to to look at it from the, from the other perspective of of acting as a kind of a balancing uh, actor who, which intervenes at certain points yeah. and well, doesn't on the other side. tell that to the minister because ongoing governments over the years have have been unable to help themselves, it seems to me, Indeed. in interfering in the market. Now, one of those interventions, which proved extremely popular with first-time buyers, extremely expensive <laughs> for the taxpayer, is the help to buy scheme, where you That's get right. back four years worth of tax. You don't need to save for your deposit. And, and you know, Bob's your uncle. Now, I've been long a kind of, you know, against that kind of measure. It, it looks like it may be abolished this year, Tom. Would that be fair? I think well. Uh, I noted that the Tonishta mentioned that he that he was fond of help to buy. Uh, so that might suggest to me that it may be retained. Certainly, the Commission on Tax and Welfare would have agreed that it should be abolished as soon as possible. It is obviously clearly inflationary, um, and often has a very significant deadweight loss, meaning that it, it's, it's giving money to people that don't necessarily need it. Not all first-time buyers are in. Uh, a constrained financial position, for example, um, and, and and again, there is a huge opportunity cost associated with that. Mm. The money, that, the money that is spent on these measures could be could be spent on something else, and we often lose sight of that. And, and our view certainly was that the help to buy scheme should be ended as soon as possible, meaning in budget twenty twenty three. Right now, one factor which is affecting everybody at the moment, it doesn't matter what kind of homeowner tenant you are, um, is the cost of living crisis. It's very, very real. And we have been told to expect great measures in the budget to try and alleviate it because, you know, people out there need immediate measures, not stuff that's going to hit them in next year's tax as such. Now, the emergency measure is the helicopter money, just handing people cash on their bills or whatever to pay it down. That's okay. (laughs) It works. It does the job. But my goodness, there's a cost and eating bread is soon forgotten. What can we expect, do you think, Tom, in this budget to immediately relieve energy costs that we know and we are told and we are terrified uh, into thinking are going to land this winter? Yeah. Well, it seems that what the government is going to do is to provide relief on uh, the next three energy bills. So uh, everyone will get €200 off each of their next three energy bills, amounting to €600 total per household. Then alongside that, in in order to to, to protect more vulnerable households, obviously there will be, it seems, about a €10 increase and perhaps a little bit more in terms of most social welfare measures. That's effectively another five hundred and twenty euro for those households. So that that ten euro plus the six hundred credit would would effectively amount to about a twenty euro increase for mm. those households, which is broadly in line with what's needed to counter the cost of living increase for those households. Now the problem with that for those households is that we may have nine percent inflation this year and it's a little bit lower for lower income lower income households, but we're actually probably going to have about another four or five percent inflation next year. So once-off measures, all mm. they do is, once that's taken away, those people still have this income deficit and it's going to be even greater next year. So once-off measures can be problematic like that. It would be better to actually deal with the issue structurally 
And of course, it goes without saying that, that the 600 euros that are going to everyone, a lot of households don't actually need that. We have record household savings, as you know. Household net wealth in Ireland is now a trillion. Um, so there are, are many households that don't necessarily need Yeah, can I ask you about that? Because we're told time and time again, oh, it's too expensive to target it. You know, it's too difficult. It costs more you know, to target it to low-income households than to give it to everybody. But it seems to me that we have to be able to identify either through the tax system, maybe everybody who isn't in yeah. the tax net is a low-income household of, of its yeah. very nature, um, or people with children or people living on social welfare benefits. I mean, how how difficult can it be to make sure that all of that money, because you're right, Tom, there are lots and lots of people who are, everybody's struggling a bit, um, but not all animals are equal. And you know, I think everybody would want it to go to those people who need it most. Yeah, I, I think, look, tax administration and welfare administration have improved dramatically in recent years. Everything is digitised now. Everything is on computer. The systems are starting to talk to each other a bit more. So it would be possible to do something, absolutely. I accept that you couldn't maybe do something in a few weeks, although we have known about this cost of living crisis for six to nine months now. Mm. Uh, maybe not nine months, but certainly for six uh, so it would have been possible to put something in place. And certainly for budget 2024, I think there would be absolutely no excuse not to have a proper targeted system if indeed this cost of living crisis mm. is still with us, which it unfortunately probably will be. Um, so it is, it is possible. And look, with tax administration, revenue knows exactly how much everyone earns in terms of their wages mm. uh, and in terms of, in terms of how much tax they're paying. So everyone has... Everyone is part of part of the revenue system. They were able to help people in terms of the pandemic unemployment payments. Obviously, we had the wage subsidy scheme as well. So we have a huge amount of inf- information on household incomes, and it would be possible administratively to, to do that. And of course, it would save an enormous amount of money. There's no doubt this is the easiest way to do it. It's a universal mm-hmm. measure. Therefore, mm-hmm. it will be popular. I understand why they did it that way. It's probably preferable to having a price cap. Uh, because it retains the incentive to reduce your energy consumption, yeah. which is yeah. which is certainly positive. Um, so I, I wouldn't be too critical. They may have decided that there are internal administrative issues that made it impossible for Budget 2023 that, that I'm not aware of. But certainly for Budget 2024, if if and when we still have a crisis, I, I think there'd be no excuse. Goodness, well, have we'll have we'll have a host of different more. problems if we're looking at this in Budget 2024. Indeed, now, just indeed, let, let me ask you finally, because, you know, although Pascal who Michael McGrath are, have the lion's share of this job on Tuesday uh, yeah. in the budget, uh, the government is, of course, a coalition and the third leg on that uh, stool are the Greens. How difficult will it be, you know, politically, economically, to marry the very, very ambitious climate change targets that yeah. we have, things like carbon taxes, cutting those, cutting that. Like, I, that's really difficult when you're trying to do this other job in terms of the green agenda. Uh, do you think that that could scupper some of the measures that, that say, opposition parties are calling for? Yeah, I, I, I think you're right. I, I, think, I think the timing of this is dreadful in terms of the interaction of the cost of living crisis with the need to to cut our carbon emissions. It is very, very difficult. And certainly it's something that we, we grappled with on, on the tax commission. And we really emphasized that what we were talking about in terms of ramping up taxes on carbon and, and getting rid of, uh, you know, subsidies related to, to carbon, that that would have to be over a five to seven year period. But actually what you can do is you can, you can continue to proceed with, say, the carbon tax and, and measures like that but at the same time protect people in, in terms of the cost of living crisis. And the way you do that is by providing direct income support to the households 
and, and alongside and then factor in what the extra cost in terms of cost of living mm-hmm. there will be from carbon taxes and, and protect those households but you can't protect everyone we, we won't be able to protect everyone anyway in terms of cost of living we don't have the fiscal resources yeah. for that yeah. and, and we're just going to have to accept that the cost of living is going to have to be higher for some households and that it's better for those that it that that be higher income households rather than lower income households. Indeed. So it is possible to, to square the circle, but I completely accept that the, the politics of it are very, very difficult. Yeah. All right. Well, listen, Dr. Tom MacDonald of Nairi, thank you so much uh, for joining us on the home show this morning. And um, we look forward, uh, as always, to uh, the budget and hopefully the measures incorporated therein. Thanks a million, Tom. My pleasure. I'll be live uh, myself on independent.ie with the team of experts on Budget Day. uh, So you can tune into that. And of course, it'll be across all of the News Talk uh, shows as well. Now, what makes a great shed and how do you give it the wow factor? Well, Kelly Howarth has been crowned winner of the UK's Shed of the Year and joins me now on The Home Show. Kelly, you're very welcome this morning. Hi, hello, good morning. Now, I've been having a look at your fabulous shed. I I think I feel bad calling it a shed. You you have (laughs) built something absolutely fantastic. You were the first winner from the budget category of the Coupernal Shed of the Year. Tell me a little bit about what makes your shed stand out. Well, I think it's because it was built so frugally. Um, the the shed is actually on an allotment plot. So it's rented land. So you don't want to spend a lot of money um, on, on these sheds. And as you know, they can cost quite a lot of money to buy off the, the shelf. So we had an idea where I needed to create a greenhouse space. So I thought, what what would work? And I, I, I went on Facebook Marketplace and saw that people were just giving away doors, these old 80s doors, glass doors. So I thought, Maybe I can do something with them. So I started collecting them and that's when we built this structure and it's and um I shared it on Instagram the whole build and people were really, you know, surprised by how good it was looking. I thought maybe I'm onto something here. So um yeah, I entered it in Shed of the Year and surprisingly won. <laughs> now tell me, so you collected doors off of yeah. Marketplace and you when you say you collect them, you just kind of grab them up where you could and pallets and things like that. How much did you end up spending in total, Kelly? Just under £200. Um, and that was mainly on structural, so so wood that we would need to screw the doors to. Mm. You know, you can really avoid that. But that was the only expense just to, to, to make it structurally sound. Uh, but yeah, the doors were mainly offered for free on Facebook Marketplace. I'd send them a message and just go collect them and we got them, painted them and made them look like a, a building rather than a stack of old doors. And it certainly does look like a building. It's absolutely fab. Now, you clearly have green fingers. Uh, was it always your intention to to use this shed for potting and planting and all of that? Yeah, I mean, it's a working shed. So um, it, it's not it's not just for show. So um, but I wanted it to be somewhere I could enjoy being as well, um, you know, there, there are spiders, there's no getting away from that, <laughs> but at least it's a pleasant space to sit in. So when I'm not working, I can sit and have a cup of tea. There's a little kitchenette area and I sometimes take my books down and, and I just look at the garden while I'm in there. It's a pleasant place to be and it's a little retreat away from the house. 
there's somewhere for me to be for an hour, just an hour a day. I get to go there and, and enjoy the space. Well, yes, because you're a busy mum. So, yeah. you know, you obviously have lots to do. And uh, finding that hour, I think, is the dream of many um, parents <laughs> out there yeah, where they can escape. It really is. And having somewhere nice to do it. Um, maybe. Yeah. Ha- have you told your kids where the shed is? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. They're allowed to come occasionally, um, but they must be on their best behaviour. No, they, they know that mummy's ran off to the allotment. Okay. <laughs> so, yeah, my husband, uh, I'll sometimes say, right, your turn with the kids. I am off for an hour. And uh, they know that I can't be reached for at least an hour. Now, you did put in some creature comforts. Uh, tell us how you have outfitted it. Do you have a loo in there? <laughs> we do. Yeah, it's a little off-grid compost loo um, because... I do take the children down, especially in the holidays. So they'll come with me and they'll be pottering, mainly just digging holes and filling them in again. But um, they always need the the loo. And instead of ruining my cherry tree with the boys, I said, right, just build something for them. So if they must go, then they've got somewhere to go. (laughs) So they, um, yeah, we built that for them. Number ones only. Oh, number one's only. Right. Okay, that's the rule. Well, it's good to have rules around your home, whatever it looks like. Um, okay, so uh, so you use it for the potting and then you plant in the allotment itself. Um, now, the allotment movement as, is very, very strong in England. Uh, mm. Less so here, which I always think is a huge pity. I, I think yeah. they're fantastic and there's fewer and fewer of them. Um, tell us how it works in your case. Well, the allotments... Um the idea of an allotment came around during the Second World War. So the poorer families, when it was ration time, could grow their own food. Um, so the local councils would give um, allotted um, sections of land to, to the poorer farmers. I mean, it's not like that anymore. You now have to wait on a waiting list, which can be years long. Mine was years long. Um, just to get this little plot of land, they're, they're like gold dust where we are. But once you have them... Um, you can tend them as long as you take care of them, tend them, grow on them. It's yours, and and you just pay like a yearly rental just to just mm. to hire the land, and yeah. And what kind of things do you grow on your allotment? Is it flowers? Is it food? Or a combination I, of both? Yeah, I do have flowers, a small cut flower patch, uh, but it also encourages pollinators, the bees, to the plots, um, and I grow um, vegetables. Every vegetable you can think of, I like the weird and wonderful as well. And I do grow medicinal plants uh, for her homemade herbal remedies. So um, I, I quite lo- I love, I'm passionate about natural healing. So when at all possible, I would rather grow something, harvest it, and use it for these ailments like tummy aches and headaches and things like that. Right, okay. And have you had to read up a lot on what works and what's used? Because, of course, a lot of medicines, convention medicines yeah. are plant-based. Isn't that right? Yeah, well, yeah, I do. I've, I'm an avid reader. I, everything I grow, I research beforehand, whether that's a vegetable, a flower, or, or a herbal remedy. I'm, I love knowing every detail about what I grow. It's just a yeah. thing I, I do. Um, and recognizing plants and what you can use, what you can't use, the parts of the plant you can and can't use. It's, yeah, it's a, it's a process, but it's what I enjoy. Now, fill us in a little on your Irish roots, Kelly. Okay, uh, well, my grandmother... Uh, Maureen, she was born in Armagh and um, back in the 50s, uh, she married my my grandfather, Henry, and they moved to England to find work. And between the two of them, they had 10 children. I'm from a very large Irish family, all of which are <laughs> avid gardeners. So I've, 
I've really I learned young to to tend garden and grow things. Now, tell me, what advice would you give to people who are looking now with envy at your winning shed of the year and want to give their own shed a makeover? Where would you start? Facebook Marketplace <laughs> <laughs> or, or eBay. Or, you know, people, especially when they're, they're doing the homes up, they, they want rid of the, the old doors. It's, it really is just doors for me. I, I use them as walls, as, you know, a greenhouse effect. There's 15 doors in my shed and it's all just been arranged in a certain way to make a tool store, an off-grid bathroom and a potting area and a kitchenette. Um, just look out for these free materials, collect them and build with them and, and just use your imagination, really. Just try and get creative and that, you know, everything can be obviously made over and made much easier with, with, with the use of paint too. So that yeah. was a big, yeah. Yeah, because you painted it in, in a kind of a pink and black uh, theme, yeah. didn't you? And it really brightens it up. Uh, yeah, the the, door, the the outside of the building is black and the door is pink. The kitchenette area is like a soft pink and then you've got the potting area, which is green. I've just thrown a lot of complementary colours at each other and they seem to work really well. Um, that rustic homely kind of feel yeah. and, um, Well there's yeah. nothing there's nothing rustic about your shed it looks, <laughs> looks as if a family of four could move into it and do quite well in there Kelly Howarth uh, winner of 2022 Shed of the Year and folks do go online and have a look at uh, Kelly's shed it's I'm again not calling it a shed it's absolutely fantastic uh, and congratulations Kelly and thanks a million for joining us on the Home Show this morning Thank you Now coming up we're going to stay in the garden uh, we're going to get wild about rewilding and as always you can get in your questions to us email them problems and queries anything you want to say comment on the show to the home show at newstalk.com or you can text us on 53106 we'll be back here in a few moments with a fascinating story Now, my next guest moved to the wilds uh, in West Cork and fell in love with a piece of land that he dreamed of uh, recreating to an Atlantic rainforest that was in 2009. And Owen Dalton has just published a book chronicling his success in making that dream a reality and joins me now on the home show. Owen, you're very, very welcome. Thank you, Sinead. Nice to talk to you. Now, the book is called An Irish Atlantic Rainforest, A Personal Journey into the Magic of Rewilding. Owen, what's an Atlantic rainforest? Well, uh, I certainly had no idea what it was when, when I came here. When, when I bought this farm in May 2009, what attracted me to it was that most of the land was, was covered in this most beautiful forest, but I, I didn't know that it was rainforest. In fact, I had no idea that there was such a thing as rainforest anywhere outside of the tropics. It was only over the subsequent years that I was I I immersed myself in reading uh, as much as I could about ecology and in particular forest ecology that I it, it dawned on me that what I had here was was rainforest and the way I I was able to 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 know that was the presence of what are called epiphytes. So epiphytes are plants that grow on other plants, generally trees. 
but without being rooted in the ground. So it, mosses or yeah, mosses, but also uh, other other larger plants like ferns and even flowering plants and even sometimes small trees. Um, but it but they don't include things like ivy or honeysuckle, mm. which uh, grow from the ground up a tree. Okay. But but the fact that epiphytes use use a tree as a kind of a substrate to grow on, but without being rooted on the ground, means that they're completely dependent on frequent and abundant arrival of water or other forms of mm. moisture from the air. Right. Know? Now, obviously, we get a lot of that in this country um, a, a lot of the time. What we don't get, of course, is what the tropics has. As you say, you traditionally consider in a rainforest is that intense uh, humid heat. So you're, this is just a different kind of microclimate, is it? It is. What we have here are are what are called temperate rainforests because Ireland is in a, in a temperate zone. And it's true that we don't have that steamy kind of a heat that they have in the tropics. But Ireland, it's worth remembering that Ireland's climate is largely conditioned by the Gulf Stream. So we're roughly on the same uh, latitude as somewhere like Newfoundland, which is covered in snow and ice for a large proportion of the year. Mm. Ireland has a very different climate to that and that's down to the the Gulf Stream which brings a constant current mm. of uh, warm waters and all all that goes with that. So it's conducive to to that extra growth. Now listen, yeah. Owen, your your background and your childhood in particular uh, wouldn't have led one to believe that this is where you'd end up out on the Berra Peninsula. Tell us a little bit about where you grew up. I'm from I'm from Dublin uh, and I I grew up in Dublin. Throughout my childhood, we would often visit friends who lived in the countryside um, and also in, in the parts of Dublin where, where I lived as a child, mostly rat mines, there were, there were quite a number of abandoned bits of, of ground, very often the, the estates of, of landed gentry from the past that had gone wild and as a child, we, myself and my friends, we used to spend a lot of time getting up to all sorts of scrapes in these <laughs> in these places, and I think there's there's always been something in me that that was attracted to to wild places. Mm. Uh, you became a sculptor. That's right. Yeah. So I I went. To, I spent seven years in Italy uh, studying, well, learning how to carve in marble and stone sculpture. Uh, and and studying other aspects of that, and that was actually what attracted me to the Bear Peninsula was that the first time I ever visited this part of the world, which would have been around 2000, maybe a year or two later, I just fell in love with the landscape, which I found to be intensely sculptural, with the the the, the rock formations, the way the the rock had naturally weathered into these amazing sculptural shapes. But what I also saw in the land here which I absolutely fell in love with was the fact that any pieces of land that had been left unused or unfarmed for a period of time had gone back to wild habitat, often wild native forests and when I saw that I said that's where I'd like to live and I started looking out for one of these these pieces 
of land for sale um, with a view to selling my house in Dublin and, and buying a place like that. That's ultimately exactly what I did. Now, it's a very, I suppose it's a dream for a lot of people just to jack it all in, move down to the country and commune with nature. <laughs> it, it It's easier said than done, it would seem to me, because I know initially when you moved in, you were sharing your land with a, a lot of animals that had got there first, goats and deer. <laughs> Tell me about uh, what, what you had to do first to, to kind of keep them away. Well, the goats and deer... As I said, there was this really beautiful forest on the land, but in ecological terms, it was in a it was in a really bad state because you had feral goats, which are essentially domestic goats that have been released into the wild and and have started to reproduce, uh, and you also had lesser numbers of sika deer. Uh, both species are non-native and what we would call invasive species, so they're they're species that are that have kind of got out of control of the natural balance of their surroundings. Mm. And what they were doing was that they were eating every last tree seedling, uh, which was preventing the forest from reproducing. And any forest that's unable, like any population of anything that's unable to reproduce for long enough, it'll, it'll start to die out. And that's what was happening to the forest here. Uh, also, they, they had stripped out all uh, ground flora. So a native in a native forest in a healthy state should have a really rich ground flora of a huge multitude and diversity and abundance of wildflowers and all sorts of other flora. In the forest here, that was completely missing. It just it was it was just gone. You you got a grant. You managed to persuade the powers that be to build a fence, and did, did. they move on? They were excluded essentially from from grazing within my place, and that released the most spectacular array of new growth of of forest and wildflowers and everything. The land really came booming back to ecological health in the most amazing mm. way. Now. You have said Ireland is one of the most ecologically trashed and dysfunctional places on earth. That That's a harsh statement for something that is really considered a very green country. What, what did you mean by that? Well, I think the colour green can be misleading. If you, if you look at a field of perennial ryegrass, that... There's nothing as green as a, as, as a field of perennial ryegrass. But green as it is, it's also biologically sterile. You, you, you have one species of grass grazed by probably one species of domestic livestock, whether it's sheep or cattle, and almost nothing else. So, you know, Ireland has been promoting itself as as this green island, but but it's actually the in in ecological terms it's in it's in a really bad state in fact it's difficult to imagine how it could be worse that's kind of shocking to hear because we're selling the emerald isle abroad and mm. the 40 shades of green and all this kind of thing and you're telling me that green probably isn't the healthiest color that we should be having well it should be it should be 40 shades of green and not just one <laughs> that makes <laughs> okay. sense all right know? Like if if you're talking about nature and ecosystems, if if for example, if you walk into the the forest that I have here now, which is in a good state now, 
relatively good state in ecological terms, you probably have, well, you, you definitely do have thousands of different species living there, which co-evolved with one another. So they, there's, there aren't just the thousands of species, there are all of the interactions between mm. them. So they, they all evolved over long periods of time to work together as an ecosystem. Mm. If you have, as I said, a field of, of perennial ryegrass or uh, a crop of Sitka spruce or a mountaintop covered in uh, melinia, i.e. purple moorgrass, they are what are called monocultures. So all of them are green, or most of the time they're green, uh, but none of them harbour any kind of life at all, really, or very, very little, certainly in comparison to an actual proper wild natural ecosystem. An Irish Atlantic Rainforest, A Personal Journey into the Magic of Rewilding is published now and available in good bookshops. Owen Dalton, thank you so much for joining us this morning on The pleasure, Home Show. Pleasure, to talk to you Sinead. That's all we have time for this week but if you'd like to get involved in the show, if you have a question for us or guests you'd like us to have on or something you'd like to hear us cover on the show, uh, well then do get in touch with us during the week 53106 for 30 cent or you can email us at any stage at thehomeshow at newstalk.com and don't forget to check out the podcast which is up on the News Talk website. Thanks to Marisa Sullivan producing today with Stephen McLoon and Peter Malloy was on sound. Anton's up next. Have a wonderful weekend.